0: Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses
1: The with reality views, of that
0: eight show a week slog is really hard When
1: I start on a character, I have to draw them and I'm, I'm not an artist This is an effect
0: built in myth and mystery So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin You're a bit different to the other girls in this area Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or an, a singer
1: and think, oh, I've got six weeks.
0: My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, <laughs> out of this week. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my
1: second career. And her face was beaming. It was just I haven't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much.
0: Dr Peter Cook is an internationally recognised performing arts educationalist, administrator, researcher and practitioner. Born in Brisbane, Peter was the first graduate of the Theatre Design course at the National Institute of Dramatic Art, NIDA. Peter was appointed Professor and Head of Carnegie Mellon University's School of Drama in 2009. He was subsequently appointed a University Professor in 2019. Peter stepped down as Head of School in 2020 after 12 years in the position. Prior to his appointment, he was Deputy Director and Head of Design at NIDA, a role he held for 22 years. Peter has taught and lectured extensively throughout Southeast Asia, including leading design masterclasses and designing productions at the National School of Drama in New Delhi, India. Over three decades, Peter has designed some 150 productions across the disciplines of drama, opera, dance, puppetry, music theatre, television, casinos and large-scale events. It is a brilliant career, creating art, guiding students, leading institutions And ultimately, serving the play. Peter Cook, good morning. Good morning. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to be in your kitchen (laughs) uh, having this conversation. Uh, Peter, as um, uh, somebody who's devoted their life to the arts, as an educator, as a practitioner, um, as somebody who's investigated it many times, why do you feel uh, the arts are so vital to society, essential?
1: Well, I came from a family that um, music was important to my mother and my father was a diplomatic correspondent for the ABC and we we travelled quite a bit and uh, I went to a boarding school just across the river from where we're sitting and I guess from a very early age we as a family had music in our lives. I remember a recording of Tosca with Renata Tobaldi that my mother used to play, and I must have been three or four. So I, it goes back to she was a, a, a terrific pianist, and eventually from Mackay she was, and she would uh, play for the ABC concert series as an accompanist up there in those days. They'd pick up the local accompanist. and uh, So that just happened to be around. I didn't know that it had any meaning at that stage. And then as life unfolded, you know, through school, I was at a you know, ordinary state schools in Brisbane, a fairly you know dismal sort of beginning. And then my father's career took off and we were living in Asia and we came back to boarding school. And suddenly we were in a different milieu from sort of the dry, dusty, backwards of Brisbane. And we were starting to be taken to concerts at the town hall in Brisbane and things like that. So I started to see and hear and look at things... Uh, in a wider world i wasn 't a great sportsman, so it was just an area that I guess I was sort of tantalized by early on. I remember going and see the vener boys choir at the at the um, at the town hall in Brisbane and thinking all well, these boys came out in their their cassocks and things just as we were wearing in the school choir at t s s and I thought, gosh, you can travel the world and be a choir boy. <laughs> <So> I <laughs> thought I might, uh, I might, you know, pers- think about that. Uh, and then I, I was very good at school. I was going to do medicine. Uh, all my life was sort of headed in that direction. My many in my family are in the medical world. Um, and then I, I just was attracted to the theatre and and performance mainly through a job i got after school after i left southport we went to canberra and my parents came back from overseas and we had the last two years in canberra i was working at the canberra theater center and you know just uh, backstage got a job and the melbourne theater company came with a production tyrone guthrie's production of All's Well that ends well and it had an unbelievable cast patricia kennedy patricia connolly freddie Parslow, Simon Chalvers, Frank Thring, uh, Neil Fitzpatrick. It was an unbelievable cast. I remember standing in the wings watching Frank Thring come on one night in a, in a, in a tail suit, and he said, My eyes smell onions, I shall cry anon. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, I love that. I knew him from Ben-Hur and the movies. yeah. And suddenly I was standing within, we were breathing the same air, you know, this sort of famed... Hollywood star, and I'm this boy with a you know a broom backstage at the Canberra Theatre Centre. Anyway, I just I was entranced by that, and then you know, I was back at school, and I was in my last year at school, and I was studying away, thinking medicine's coming up. And then the Melbourne Theatre Company, then the Australian Ballet came with Ray Gordon that's the head head of the wardrobe department, and they came with a wonderful production with Maureen Beaton and um, Don Smith of uh, Turandot. And that played alongside uh, Glennis Fowles and Anson Austin in their famous bowen, designed by Tom Lingwood. And again, I was backstage, you know, running around, picking things up, or whatever you do backstage as a 16-year-old. And I just sat there. I was dressing Don Smith, you know, just put on that by Ray Godden, the head of the costume department. And suddenly I'm in a room with Don Smith, this world-famous tenor. He's running up and down the scales because he's an absolute Aussie bloke. You know. He, there were no frills about Don whatsoever. Hey, mate, put this on now, put that on now. And so we'd get, sort of get him dressed in all this funny stuff for, um, to play Califf in uh, Turandot. And Morag would be next door, this you know unbelievable diva from the English National Opera and she's running up and down the scales, he's running up and down the scales, and I'm trying to work out how press studs work. <laughs> so it was like I was a fish well out of water. Uh, but he liked me, and I liked him, and um, I, I just thought that this was a wonderful uh, world to sort of be in. Then I left that, and i go back to my studies and you know, try and get through the end of the year and go off to university. Then out of nowhere, Betty Drewitt, who was the head of the costume department in um the Melbourne Theatre Company rang me and said, you were so great in Canberra, would you like a job? And I said, no, I'm going to university to do medicine. She said, oh, don't do that. Come down and be (laughs) be at the Melbourne Theatre Company. And anyway, that went backwards and forwards for a while. My parents were absolutely incensed that I would even consider. I don't even know what it was, what the job was, but I just loved the idea of being with all those people. So one fateful day I said to my mum, I'm off. And off I went. I'd finished school. I'd got my university entrance and all that. And I thought, no, I'm going to the Melbourne Theatre Company. So I got on the train. (laughs) I went to Melbourne and booked into the YMCA, opposite Flinders Street Station. And that's where I lived for the first three months, working as a dresser, shopper, buyer, rouseabout in the costume department of the Melbourne Theatre Company. Can you recall what your wage was? Oh, it was, I mean, it might have been like, $15 $15 or something like that. It was and came in a little brown packet, you know, on each Thursday. But it was enough to, I smoked, and it was enough to um, get me through uh, the week. And eventually I moved into this wonderful, wonderful decaying house in um, Turak, in Lancel Road, and uh, owned by a fabulous woman who's who had no money at all. And I was paying her the pittance in rent, but we had great fun. And she loved the theatre, we'd go off together. Uh, and I was working for the Melbourne Theatre Company. What I didn't know was Frank Thring lived on the corner, in Lancel Road in Turek. Anyway, he took a great shine to me when I was down there, and we became unbelievable friends. I think everybody thought we were having an affair and all that stuff, which we probably should have, but we didn't. Um, and I loved him, and he just introduced me to a wonderful world of exotica. Uh, you know from books to art I mean he lived in this palace of a house called Rylance on Turak Road surrounded by Salvador Dalis and um, uh, you know jewels and pre-Columbian gold and it was just like a treasure trove it was like being in the hermitage a private house and uh, anyway he and he was great fun, and we ran around Melbourne together for, for a year and a half while I was working for the Melbourne Theatre Company. At some point, he said, look, you can't do this. You can't be cleaning people's shoes. It's just, you know, it's just not right. You have to go and get yourself educated. So he said, have you ever heard of NIDA? And I said, no. <laughs> so he, oh, I wrote away, and I got the forms back from NIDA and said, "Oh, I think uh, I'd like, you know, I'm doing this at the Melbourne Theatre Company and so on. So, so I knew a lot about how the wardrobe worked and designers worked after a year and a half there with Christian Fredrickson and Hugh Coleman and Dick Prins and Anne Fraser, Kim Carpenter, all these wonderful designers were there and I was running around getting all their stuff. You know, say so they want a piece of grey silk, I'd go to Buckley's and Nun's and find a bit of grey and bring it back and Christian would say, no, it's not cool enough. And I had no idea what he was talking about. But after some time I realised that grey comes in many, many hues yeah. And you just learn from on the spot uh, tutoring from these exceptional people the richness of uh, the thinking that goes into making any uh, costume or theatrical or, you know thing uh, that people spend their lifetime thinking about whether that grey is warm enough or not and so I loved all that anyway I applied for NIDA and got in and Did the acting course or. Design design. Course. It was a It was the first time that design was offered in Australia as a full-time course. So I'm diploma number 001, <laughs> number one in the country. And, and Arthur Dix running the course? Arthur had come out from London. From, um, he'd come out from um, somewhere. Uh, Lincoln, Lincoln uh, rep. Uh, John Clark brought him out uh, to be the head of design and there was no design course so we were the sort of experimental bunnies in the first year there were four of us and uh they were was who were
0: your classmates
1: uh Fiona Riley Jan Harris and uh, Christopher Webster Christopher went into film uh Fiona became a designer and then the head of costume at NIDA and Jan Harris unfortunately passed away early but he was exceptionally talented but we were guinea pigs, so, you know, we were doing funny classes on ecclesiastical costume. I mean, no one had any idea of how to run a design course. And the main thing was we were making clothes and making and painting all day, every day. We were making stuff and learning as we went. And Arthur was a wonderful guide in that, uh, and now the course is fabulous but then it was very you know we would do a couple of classes and maybe some life drawing maybe make some jewelry but then basically we were sort of putting on shows and, and learning all the way I made like hundreds and hundreds of costumes in my time there and because I'd learned how to cut and do some things at the Mormon Theatre Company before I arrived.
0: Those, those designers at MTC at the time, you know, Kim Carpenter, Hugh Coleman you were talking about where were they
1: taught? Uh, well. The process used to be... So, uh, Christian Fredrickson was a graphic artist, and he's from New Zealand, so he had done some some of that. Uh, Hugh, I'm not sure where Hugh came from. Uh, Kim Carpenter was trained by the Motley's in London. Uh, so you had to go somewhere to be trained, and probably in an allied field, like graphic art or architecture. Uh, Brian Thompson was an architect. Uh, people came from... J- James Ridewood was... Um, a good friend of mine all my life, uh, he was uh, apprenticed to Anne Fraser. And Anne, I'm not sure where she was, but I think the thing was you just got apprenticed to someone, one, not officially apprenticed, but just would work alongside somebody and learn how to do it. So in 1972, John Clark decided who was then the head of Ida, said, let's have a design course. And it was in that year also that the acting course, which was the Angela Punch McGregor uh, year... Uh, became a three-year course, and and how old is the school at this time? It's uh, it's about twenty years old, about thirty years 30 old. Years so, old. it celebrated its fortieth anniversary when I was so. I graduated from at NIDA in nineteen seventy-four, and the school was about thirty. I think it was somewhere about the nineteen fifty-four. It might have been founded by Tom uh, by uh, uh, Philip Parsons and. Um, uh, the people at the New South Wales University and then John, uh, Tom Brown was the director John Clark was appointed as a history teacher and then he took over and he was there all, all my life <laughs> and a wonderful, wonderful person he was too
0: Were you given the opportunity to design shows of your own at NIDA mm-hmm.
1: and what were they? So I did a production of um, the first thing I did was The Room by Harold Pinter uh, which I had no idea what I was doing through the whole thing. Um, and Angela Punch McGregor started in it, and it was just one of those you know, serendipitous things that it sort of turned out all right, but I had no clue what I was doing, none whatsoever. I just thought, I'll design something. I didn't know any... I, I had no idea of how to build a world or that there's a theatrical landscape required or that there's some linking between what people looked like and the world in which they inhabited... I really didn't know any of those things. I just thought, you know, costume, (laughs) whatever that was, and some sort of backing. Uh, And I still got the designs uh, all these many years later. And they're they're hopeless. But, you know, I thought they were magnificent at the time. And my mother, bless her, she would travel wherever I was in Australia. She would come and see every single production I did. So she would drive overnight from Canberra, come and see these silly plays that we were doing in the corner of a room in, in terrible sheds at NIDA and, you know, go home saying, my magnificent son is in the theatre. <laughs> so it was it was fun. So do. they came around
0: after um, initially being horrified? Yeah, it
1: took a while, but yeah. eventually they did. Um, but then I did John in his final, my final year, which was 1974, I did a production of Oh, What a Lovely War with John, and that was one of those landmark productions at NIDA where the scale of it was bigger than we'd had before Uh, you know wonderful orchestra terrific terrific cast led by again Angela Punch McGregor uh, and her year and it was just one of those events that sort of rang a bell Um, it was very timely it had been on in London and I'd been to London around about that time my grandmother had sent me on a world tour so I, I was I'd been in London and I met um, I met the the author of it uh, out at Stratford East, uh, and it was just a wonderful experience to come back. And John sent me down to Canberra to you know research at the National Library, things that were going on in the First World War from an Australian's perspective, which is where he wanted to set it. By this time, I'd got sort of some sort of handle on. The notion that you might have a world in which the play exists. And Jane Littlewood Jane Littlewood was the uh, was the author of, uh, is the author of um, uh, Oh What a Lovely War but I, I really got a handle on that you establish a landscape and a world that supports the actors and the clothes that they wear and everything they use comes from within that landscape which now sounds you know, like duh, the but, but it, to me then it was a sort of big breakthrough so that was great and from then I was asked, to, uh, Alan Edwards was at the Queensland Theatre Company, he was looking for a resident designer and he asked Keith Bain who would be good for up there and Keith Bain, the wonderful choreographer, mm-hmm. teacher at NIDA, suggested me and so I was appointed before I finished NIDA uh, to the Queensland Theatre Company where I happily worked for the first five or six years of my life. You received a
0: Commonwealth scholarship to study at NIDA. Um, the, the expense of, of tertiary training in some of these schools is quite prohibitive to prospective students. Uh, that's
1: something that could be done a lot more, couldn't it?
0: Um, yes, it's impossible now. now. So,
1: I, yes. Um, in that time, because my family wasn't keen on me doing this whatsoever, I didn't have a great deal of support. I mean, they supported me ultimately, unbelievably. But just, you know, in my first steps, uh, I didn't have any money. But thankfully I got this Commonwealth Scholarship and that paid me uh, to go to NIDA. But I didn't get paid for the first... I didn't get the money from the, co- the Commonwealth for about the first six months. So the people that I was with, uh, Lulu Pincus, for example, and she was Yahoo Sirius's wife eventually, and Fiona Riley and various of my friends, we all lived in this crappy little house in Surrey Hills and they paid, all the, they paid for everything for the first six months and kept me alive. But I was seven stone, chain smoking, you know, as thin as a rake. And all we did was, you know, we'd have a few beers, nibble on a few biscuits, and that would be it. And then we'd work all night at NIDA. I mean, somehow we survived. Uh, but it was a lot of work and with very little money. But we're all in the same boat. I mean, nobody had any money. Yeah. That would uh, have given you uh, great empathy for students later on when you became a teacher. It does. And I've, I've always, for the rest of my life, known how difficult it is how difficult it is for families, the big decision to allow a student to follow their own path, a a child to follow the path that may be away from where the parents wanted to to travel. And it is a risk. I mean, it is a really, really big risk. Looking back on it, I can't imagine, you know, that I was as successful as I have been um, in such a difficult world. I would never have probably entered it if I knew just how challenging the world was.
0: With these podcasts, um, I can access various people through Six
1: Degrees of Separation. And and tell me about Arthur Dix. So Arthur was a, uh, he was a, I would say, a rep designer. So that means in in Lincoln, where he was, he might be doing a play every three or four weeks. And they would be up, they'd be rehearsed. At night, they'd be playing one play and they'd rehearse all afternoon the next play. And then there'd be a weekend changeover and up would go the next set and the next set of costumes and they'd start the whole process again. So he was expert at churning out one idea, get it done, have another idea, get it done, another idea. The idea of mulling around in a studio for days thinking, I, have, well, you know, I can't find myself or I can't <laughs> find this idea or I'm challenging, you know, I, I find this too difficult to do, was anathena to him. He just said, if you've got any idea, just get on with it. Uh, because, you know, time's too short and we just don't have time to muck around. And you become very efficient at, at, uh, at deciding what a play might be uh, about. I mean, I didn't really know all this for years yeah. until after I left NIDA, I'd have to say. But in the, all my educational, you know, learnings and experience subsequently has told me that um, it does take a while for a student to become confident about picking up a text that they've never heard of never know nothing about the writer nothing about the intention of anything whatsoever and suddenly start to interpret it through the advice and guidance of a director or whoever you're working with that might be at odds with your ideas as well and so the notion of owning an idea, you dismiss pretty quickly and you think, what is the group idea? What, what's the best idea? And the best idea might come from the milliner, or it might come from the chippy, it might come from your mother talking about the play. I mean, there are many, many ways that you enter a production. Uh, and I think being alert to that and being open to that is essential. I mean, people who are precious about their, their, their artistic integrity, and it was my idea and mine only, I think that's folly. I think you just need to let it, all the vibrations that are out there in the world, let them enter you and let them talk to you and let them you know, be processed through your thinking. And out of which you might find something pretty original. I guess what I've learnt over a long period of time now, 35 years of doing this, teaching students and being in theatre schools, is that there is certainly no final answer to anything and there's no right way to do anything and there's no... Uh, end result that you say that's it it's that just simply doesn't exist Uh, what you can do though is get close to something that's interesting and sometimes you get very interesting and sometimes you get very successful and sometimes you get miles away from it and bomb Uh, but so long as you're putting all the hard work into it and thinking carefully about it and why you're making decisions i think all of that's okay
0: You've been guided by many people at NIDA and of course collaboration is an essential part of um, being a practitioner. As you enter the industry though, you're, you're expected to collaborate with professionals. Many have been in the industry for, for a long time. Uh, that can be intimidating I guess and, and how do you get through that?
1: It's enormously intimidating. So while I was at NIDA I was lucky enough to um, design two operas, one for John Tasker and one for Norman Ayrton. Norman Ayrton directed Joan Sutherland in her first Alcina at Covent Garden. And John Tasker was the director of, amongst other things, Boys in the Band and a lot of very successful Australian uh, productions. And they were both famous people. And I'm a 22-year-old novice out of school and I'm asked to do these two operas. And both of them were enormously generous and helpful in the way that they guided me through it. So within... uh, a couple of years, I was doing operas up here in Queensland for the Queensland Opera, and then one thing led to another, and I ended up working with John Copley and Anthony Besch, two very, very famous, very celebrated English opera directors, like at the top of their game, and I was 24 or 25. I remember in London, I was, um, we were doing a production of The Rake's Progress, Uh, with Anthony Bish and I, and I was staying in his studio in Hammersmith, and I was working away busily all day, and he was off running his business and directing operas at the English National Opera by day, and then he'd come home at night and he'd see what I'd done all day, and he'd say, I like this, I don't like that, you know, whatever it was. And I remember I put in front, we were doing Rake's Progress, and we decided there'd been a famous production at Glyndebourne uh, of David Hockney had designed the Rake's Progress. And we decided that we would... Tom Rakel, who's the ca- main character of the rags Progress, we would make his apartment as though it had been designed by David Hockney. So it was a, an inn sort of, you know, joke. Uh, so it was, full, it's, it was all black, uh, but it was full of crocodiles and elephant heads and all these sort of wonderful uh, things. Uh, and at one stage, Barbara the Turk arrives in a, in a black rolls-royce bearded woman and we needed a window and i hate the idea of windows and doors so uh, anthony said you know we'll stick a window in that wall let's have a look at it so i and he said make it georgian so you know just for whatever so i stuck a window in the wall and and he came up after working one day and he looked at it and he said that's absolutely hideous get in the car So we go downstairs, we get in the car with this very cross-famous English opera director and we're driving around London and he stops outside, you know, somehow, And he says, that's a Regency window. He stops outside Buckingham Palace and says, those gates are so and so." stops outside, you know, St Paul's Cathedral. They are this. And so my learning curve was fairly steep uh, when you've got... You know a very irritated opera director driving at high speed around London showing you architectural details you tend to learn pretty quickly uh, so you are thrown but that is life you know you these opportunities come along and I say it to students all the time opportunity never knocks it's 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 passing you by all the time opportunity is just like a movie it's just running in parallel to your life and if you don't reach out and grab it, it will just continue and somebody else will reach out and grab it because it's just passing us all by. And so you either make that conscious decision to say, I, I want to do this, I can see a way through it and grab it. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that. And, you know, by by our very nature, artists can be shy to some extent, but I think deep down there's a steeliness and a determination to be successful. You want people to see your work. You want to survive in an extremely difficult field. I can't imagine a more difficult field than the performing arts. Mm. Uh, and so I, was, I became good at seeing where opportunities probably lurk. Whether I grabbed them and, you know, and, and got them, I'm not sure all the time that I did, but I certainly knew that they were out there.
0: One of the most exciting things of entering uh, a production of, of a play, a musical, an opera, a dance, whatever, is as a designer, a director, a performer, is the knowledge that you garner from that immersion, mm-hmm. uh, the research you have to do, you come away from that experience knowing so much more about other worlds, other times,
1: mm-hmm. um, walking in other people's shoes. That's absolutely true. And, and you become... I didn't think that I would... After I'd finished NIDA, I didn't ever think more further study was in my horizon i thought you know i've sort of got this <laughs> preposterously i thought i've got this and off i went and as you say each time you open a script or a libretto or you know a text of some kind that you've got to interpret whether it's you know large scale or small scale you are in another landscape and suddenly you, you're looking at books, and you're looking at research, and you're you're in libraries, and you're going through all the groundwork that you need to say exactly what hat should this this character wear at a funeral, you know, in a, on a wet Wales afternoon in 1853. And suddenly you you open you know a trove of information that you'd never thought about, mm. and it becomes. Truly fascinating, and it's probably through that process I eventually thought that I would take on a PhD later in my career, which I did, and I found it a really remarkable experience to do. Well, tell me about that PhD because that's a fascinating um, investigation on the. So, at some point, at not so, let me just go back a bit. So, I'm freelancing and I'm doing all those operas, and I'm in Sydney doing lots of. Running around Australia doing operas at most of the state theatre companies and eventually at the Australian Opera. And then at some point I could see this is where opportunity knocks. Uh, John Clark invited me to uh, a dinner held in honour of Malcolm Fraser, and it was at the Sydney Hilton. And he said, Would you come and sit at our table because you're a freelance designer? you know nida backwards we need a new building we want to hit malcolm fraser for the money to build a new building and you can tell your story about going through the old school and you know just how difficult it was and the lack of equipment and all all the things that you experienced and then how you've got out and how you're making a career or whatever so i'm sitting at the table again i'm like i don't know i might have been 30 or 28 or 29 something like that and there's malcolm fraser and we chatting away, and I just did what I was told. So I, I told him, you know, what I do and what I thought of the NIDA experience, which I loved. But I said, you know, we didn't have any of the equipment we really needed and so and so on, so and so And, so. Uh, and John Clark made this, and Elizabeth Butcher, who was then the general manager of NIDA, had made this wonderful video. And it had things like 15 kids in a shower store, you know, having a shower to say, you know, how cramped the school was. And it was absolutely marvellous. And all the actors, everybody was in on the gag, And Malcolm looked at all this and said, some years later, maybe two years later, the funding came through for the new NIDA building. So from that, uh, that time, I then, about two years later, when they got the money, John rang me again and said, would you come and join NIDA? Uh, Are you interested in a job there? And I I said, I've never, other than the dinner with you the other night, I haven't thought about it. Robin Lovedew, who was then the head of design, got seriously ill. He was a wonderful, wonderful man and unfortunately passed away soon after. He was the head of design. And so John said, I'd like you to apply. So I applied for the job along with some others um, and got it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got I'm running an important design school uh, at the place that I learnt from where I didn't know anything where I joined. And I'd never step foot in a classroom. Anyway, about a week later, I got a phone call from John saying, oh, you haven't got the job. Uh, there's been a contest uh, about the appointment. So you have to go through it again. And Dame Leonie Kramer, who's the chairman of NIDA, would like to interview you and the finalists uh, to make sure that all the right processes had taken place. So I, I was nonplussed and thought, yep, I'll go along. So I, I go out to Sydney University. You know, Dame Leonie Kramer as the head of Australian literature and I knock on the door of her throne room overlooking the courtyard at Sydney University and she invites me in she's very charming and she we go through what the process was and she asks all similar questions that the candidates were asked at the interview and I left and I had a portfolio of designs and I said can I show you these and she said there's no need for that and I left so I didn't know whether I'd got it or not. Anyway, I went home. And John rang a couple of days later and said, you did get the job. You know, all the appointment uh, things were approved by Dame Leone. So you start on the 1st of January. This is November something. So I thought, oh, my God, I've got a real job, a real salary. Elizabeth Butcher promised me I'd get the top of the range. I don't think it was the top of the range. But, you know, Elizabeth Butcher. Uh, but she was very generous to me. And I, I had, for my first time in my life, a salary. I had an apartment in Sydney, and I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll buy a typewriter, because that's what all teachers must have, a typewriter. <laughs> so for some unknown reason, I went to Bingley, and I bought myself a typewriter. I've no idea what I was doing. And so the first day, I turn up for work, and I've got this typewriter, a little portable typewriter, which I've still got. And it sat on my desk to show that I was a teacher, and I was, I was in authority. I could type letters. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first, my first foray into it, and I was in a little room. It was, almost, I think, it was a, a toilet beforehand, and they transferred it into some funny little office, uh, and that's where I started. And my first year was Catherine Martin and Angus Strathy and these wonderful designers who've gone on to win Academy Awards and all those things. They were my first group of students. And I was nearly ill every day, I'd say, for the first two years. I just It was so overwhelming to suddenly be responsible and step into the shoes of Robin Lovejoy, who was an extremely celebrated legend in Australian theatre.
0: And I imagine um, you've got colleagues who are your old teachers. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they were all wonderfully supportive. And John was remarkable. I mean, John just let me build the course. I mean, it was it was much better by the time I took over because Robin had transformed it into a proper design course. Uh, but, you know, he John just said, it's yours. He, he, his advice was, you know, don't do too much. Just listen to people for a while and listen to the students and listen to the profession and listen to what directors might be thinking about, what the training processes are and how the students are coming out. So I spent about a year and a half listening, talking teaching Um, and as I say it took about two years before I felt comfortable that I could walk into a room and think I know I've got something to offer these students and off I went and 22 years later I left it as a pretty good design school Mm -hmm. who was Loudon St Hill so Loudon St Hill uh, during uh, that time at night during those years uh, I was lucky enough to get a Churchill Fellowship and so I went off around the world to some of the best theatre schools in the world and uh, in that process I went to Yale and I went to the top schools in Paris and Spain, England Uh, and I'd been thinking about uh, further study and there was a slim volume that came out on an Australian designer called Loudon St. Hill, which had been published uh, during my years at night. It was like about 50 pages. And I loved the designs. And so I started looking into Loudon and I just became fascinated with this character. So he was a young Tasmanian, uh, didn't go to school, and at about 17... Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Lee are in the Theatre Royal in Hobart doing School for Scandal and something else. And Loudon knocks on the door, gets backstage, knocks on Larry's door, and uh, Larry Evanson and he says, Hello, I'm Loudon St. Hill. I'd like to show you some of my drawings. You imagine this young 18-year-old, 17-year-old uh, in Hobart. So Larry calls Vivian in and they come and look at his Work and say, Oh, these are marvellous. Um, you must come back to London with us. The boat leaves on Thursday. And that's what happened. So Loudon jumps on a boat with Laurence Olivier and the, the whole company, you know, the people they're touring the world with, and goes back to London at 17. Uh, and within a year, two years in London, he, is, he has an exhibition of portraits in the foyer of Covent Garden. Uh, becomes uh, entwined with uh, the sort of gay London uh, mafia uh, at that stage, which was Robert Helpmann and Cecil Beaton and you know all that gang. And he was a very attractive, beautiful young man, and he became a very celebrated designer in London in a time when you know it's just after the war, and so he's there's an austerity around and he's bringing this sort of antipodean color and magic back to the theater uh that had been going going through pretty austere years during the during the war and so suddenly i'm looking at his work and thinking is there an innate australianness that this man who never came back to australia when he left you know at 16 he never ever came back again uh, But was it infused osmotically into him that there is a world that that he can pull on and pull out of himself and put on paper, no matter what the work? And so at that point, I started to think, maybe I'll embark on some research. Then a few years later, I I was appointed a special research fellow at Yale University. They take two people from around the world each year and open up. opportunity for you to be at Yale the Yale School of Drama for for a year and attend anything you like and do whatever you like Uh, any classes any lectures anything at all and they paid half and NIDA paid half so off I went to Yale for a year and with Loudon in the back of my mind and I walked into the Beinecke library one of the greatest libraries any university in the world could imagine and I said to the librarian, do you have any Australian plays or anything about Australian? He said, oh, come with me. So we go into the Australian section. And some, somebody had left Yale, maybe in the 30s or something like that, an Australian had left a body of money. So Yale buys every published Australian play. They have the greatest collection of Australiana. And there was quite a lot of information about... Um, things that Loudon had done in London. So things started to sort of fall into line. I thought, well, I'll embark on my research and I'll probably do a PhD on Loudon when I get back to Australia. And that's what I did. So I did The Year in America at, um, at Yale, which I absolutely loved. And it was a period where Hillary Clinton had just come back from Sarajevo and the war and all the troubles in Bosnia and she came to Yale and she spoke one night and I was there on the lawn watching the future Secretary of State surrounded by armed guards on top of all the buildings, sharpshooters and 2,000 Yale students sitting wrapped, listening to this future presidential nominee because um, she had gone to Yale with Bill, they'd both gone to Yale. So it was just a sort of that magical uh, mix of being in what I regard as one of the greatest universities in the world, I was a fellow there. Uh, I had access to some of the best librarian uh, uh, assistants that you can imagine, one of the best collections of Australiana, uh, and the openness when I came back to you know, take on that task. So when I got back to Australia, uh, Elizabeth Butcher, canny as ever, said, If you go to Yale, you have to sign a contract that you'll come back to us. <laughs> so <laughs> she trapped me and I had to come back. Uh, I wanted to come back, but she was cunning as ever. And um, so I came back, and seven years later, after and a huge amount of work, I um, I got my PhD.
0: Loudon Hill, well, what a fascinating character. I mean, you, you spoke earlier about the. the the families
1: and and releasing their children to go off and study somewhere i mean this was a kid that
0: went away and never came back
1: we know almost nothing about his parents he didn't go to school he was trained he did he went to the melbourne Workingmen's college and and did some drawing so he he was he got some drawing instruction and the wonderful man who did the um the murals in the hall of remembrance at the war memorial in canberra the stained glass he was also a mentor of his. So he had a, he had a connection to some artists. Uh, I know nothing of his family. There's very little records. Um, but the National Library, the one, our, our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, National, uh, National Gallery library, it's in the National Gallery, not the, not the big library, but in the National Gallery, they house all of Loudon's uh, memorabilia. So when he died, he died at sixty-nine. Uh, he uh, somebody bound up all his works and put them in the gallery at the National, uh, the Library, at the National Gallery. So when I encountered the work, I found all this out somehow, and I went down and the librarian brings them out on a trolley and suddenly there are these huge folders like, you know, four foot by three foot and, you know, two and a half feet deep of all his letters, drawings, scraps. His entire world was placed in front of me. And so for the next seven years, literally every night and every weekend for seven years, I worked on that as well as being deputy director of NIDA and running around the world doing operas and things. So it was a busy period. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Uh, back at night, uh, what was your classroom like? How did you run it? Well, they were very small. So uh, part of the role, if you're the head of a course at night, you are responsible for bringing the students in. Probably the most important decision you make uh, in your life is who you bring in. It's that interview process and, and their portfolio. Yes, but you've only got an hour or so with... Um, design, at least, you've got an hour. If you're an actor, you've got five minutes. But for a designer, I'd spend an hour or so with every student and you might get a hundred or so apply in a year and you're looking for four in america you, know, you might get a thousand when you're looking for six or eight uh, but in so at night i was looking for four or five or six and people bring in their work and as i got better at it uh, the work was less interesting to me um, it didn't reveal as much as the conversations you have so i had A process that I could put out sort of feelers and say, What do you think about whatever was going on in politics or whatever was going on in climate or whatever was going on in fisheries or whatever was going on in the bush? Or I just sort of throw out some things and see what came back. And often that was very, very revealing. I mean, you can tell from their design work whether they can draw and whether they can put any idea down, but that's meaningless about design, really. I mean, it's, it's how you think that's important. You can learn most things about how to get an idea down on paper, but it's very difficult to learn to think um, and to get people to think deeply and richly uh, takes a great deal of skill. So it's often just offering something out and saying well you know I saw something the other day and this happened what do you think of that and given their response back you get some sense of how they're interpreting the world which is important I always saw it as not a it's not a decorative art so I wasn't interested in anybody who decorates I was interested in people who I mean they can be very decorative and some of them can do the most spectacular decorative work uh, but in in the conversations you have, you want to get to the heart of what the piece might be about, so while the end result might be fabulously exotic, it's still telling a very pertinent accurate you know linear story of some kind um, that you want do you want the student to be able to reveal to you during the interview of some kind so you're you're looking at very, very rough clay.
0: Are you able to, in that hour, are you able to assess what their resilience and, and perseverance might be?
1: Well, I must have, because in the 22 years at NIDA, I had almost nobody left. Right. I mean, they left That's out of something. illness, they left out of family concerns, but almost nobody left other than if they were just, you know, it just was not going to work out. I would say that the success rate was like 98%. People would stay for the three years. So mm. they, they must have. Um, And they adapt to it, as I did as a student. You have no idea the first day you're all excited and the next day you're bewildered because people are asking questions that you've got no idea what the answer could be. Um, So there's there's, there's many aspects to design. I think it is one of the most complicated processes because you're dealing, first of all, through a director's uh, sensibility. You've got to take that on board, which may or may not align with yours. You've got actors or performers or singers or musicians or jugglers or whatever it is you're dealing with. You've got the venue with all the peculiarities of that. You've got technical, you know te- technical aspects which are bewilderingly complicated, from dealing with the Olympic Games arenas to Belfast Street. You know, the range that you can be jumping around in any one week is the difference between flying a kite and NASA. So you've got to be able to get on top of all of those things uh, and be original. And you're going to the theatre every night. I mean, I've been to, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of shows. uh, And you're seeing stuff every night and then you've got to put it out of your mind because you're working the next day. You wake up at 9 o'clock and think, "Okay, well, I saw all those things this week and I like this, I didn't like that. But what am I going to do about what I'm doing? And so there's a filter system that goes on which comes back to how you think. It's got nothing to do with I like that blue dress. It's got to do with, you know, how sensual does this woman really need to be at this scene? Or shall we go in completely the opposite direction and dress her as a hobo and let her character, you know, reveal itself through through really shocking rags. <laughs> I mean it's those are the discussions that you've got to have with the director. So it's a very, very complicated matrix, I think, design. Um, professional practice
0: changes over the decades too with the advent of technology, and that's something that you've got to be mindful of also in, in, in teaching the students. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the old days when it was all just painted flats, and now you've got computer screens and mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of technology which uh, can assist design mm-hmm.
1: well. That's true, but I mean, if you go, if you think back, you know, Josef Svoboda, in you know the nineteen forties, was using lantena magica, which was you know projection of a kind, uh, in Czechoslovakia, and he was one of the first people to sort of have abstract um, design that, that was also malleable and kinetic. So it it has been around for a while. The notion of smoke <laughs> in the theatre. <laughs> has been around since the Greeks. So the the notion of something that moves, that's intangible, that's that's, uh, suggestive, uh, that you could see a war, you could see joy, you could see hope, you could see all sorts of things, depending on how you read it and how it's set up. Those things just exist in life. I mean, I'm looking out the window here at these clouds behind you, and you think, you know, it could suggest a new day, it could suggest... You know, something's coming around the corner that's going to be pretty dangerous. So how you manipulate, that's the important thing. Of all the technology, you need to be on top of all of that, of course. And and we all are, because we are all now so, so used to it. Uh, I mean, I grew up before any of this. You know, the fax was the biggest development in my student years. And then um, the first time I used a mobile phone was in America. Uh, so it was... You know, that, all those things have happened in my... my tra- now everybody uh, is connected. Everybody has access to exactly the same things. It doesn't matter whether you're in Africa, whether you're in India, whether you're in Pittsburgh. We all have access to everything. So it becomes more and more important that you're clear about the direction that you're heading for you and the director or the, or the creative team. And I keep saying the director, but by that I also include the sound designer, media designer, all the other designers that are now involved in the collaboration. When I first started, it was really the director and the designer were all important. Now you might have a dozen people around the table who are all equally important and all deserve exactly the same space. I mean, I remember when choreographers first started being uh, credited and then the music director gets credited and now uh, the media designer gets credited and, you know, that will just go on and on. They're all at the table. On that. They're stage. all at the table, yeah, yeah. and and increasingly at at, at group meetings. Yeah. Uh, so when I was running the schools that I ran, I wanted everybody to be around the table at the same time. So yeah. I would always, uh, I'd be at every. I mean, I, I used to drive them insane, but I'd be at every meeting, uh, or eavesdropping at meetings and thinking, you know, what are they? Are they heading the right direction? Do they need a nudge? Do they need this? What do they need? Um, I remember when I was appointed uh, after NIDA, I went to America, and the American system is a year long process to be appointed. And the final thing is you do a presentation to the whole university where the drama school was located, and that's in a big theatre, and there's a thousand people. And then there's so you present your work, and then people. Q&A. And I remember when I was, went to America, my last job was at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Uh, a student stood up and said, what do you think about failure at, at, the quest, at the Q&A? And I said, well, we all fail. I mean, that is just part of, of life, that we're all heading in some direction, but the wheels tend to fall off at some point. And from failure we learn. And, well, yes, uh, yes, and get hurt and damaged <laughs> and and resilience can, can help uh, or you give in, or you turn the page and think, "Well, that was a disaster. I must think more carefully about this." Uh, but I think the aim is not to fail. And I think if you get it in your mind that it's just perfectly okay to be a mess, uh, you're not going to go far. But if you know that in the process of travelling you probably will get in a mess, how you get out of that is just as equally important as how you got into it, and knowing those things will probably keep you alive longer than just saying it's okay to fail so there's a long way to answer that that, um, that young girl's question but uh, I knew I just knew I had to tell exactly what I felt uh, truthfully at that point and I got the job (laughs) culturally was that very different to Australian schools Mm, mm, it is and how obviously the the syllabus the well first of all I'd been at NIDA for 22 years so when I when I finished uh, I thought I wanted to run NIDA and I didn't get the job so did that smart yeah yeah yeah, sure yeah I thought I was ideally suited for it and I still think that to this day yeah fair (laughs) enough um And I was a runner-up twice, Um, so I was certainly in the mix. Uh, They can make their decisions they make, and that's absolutely fine. And I enter into it with full knowledge that that's the case. But I think you still have to to stand up for yourself and think, you know, I had plenty to offer. It didn't work there, so I was taken to America to the second-best, third-best school in America. It suited me fine. But I went to America not knowing a single person other than the librarian and a few people at Yale. And so to land one of the best theatre schools in America Uh, well funded at a very prestigious university with a huge track record it's the oldest degree giving uh, drama school in America Carnegie Mellon and it's been there for 104 years when I arrived so it was older than Yale by 50 years so it's a very prestigious job to have got I didn't really know all this when I got it but I do now Um, Were you looking further afield at the time that you were applying for NIDA leadership? No, I thought I'd play golf. So I finished NIDA and I thought, well, that's probably it. I've had the best job in the country and I didn't get the next best job. So I think I'm done, I'll do a bit of tea, or I don't know what I'll do, a bit of design and just sort of fart around. And I, I play golf. So I went and played golf for a week. And I remember I was at Park, I remember there, I was was just playing out there by myself one afternoon, I thought, well, I can't do this. (laughs) I mean, this is just, this is hopeless. So I went home, and I I went on to Arts Hub or something, and I looked up and said, what's around? And there were um, half a dozen jobs going. Ballarat, Queensland, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. And so I applied for them all, and there was one in Singapore. And so I applied for all of those, and uh, I got shortlisted. So I was sort of encouraged. I thought, oh, maybe, maybe there is life after NIDA. Anyway, NIDA, uh, Singapore at La Salle, a very, very good school up there, uh, asked me to come up and be interviewed for a job, not running the theatre design area, not the theatre uh, area. Aubrey Mellor was running that. They wanted somebody to look after architecture, music, fashion, and all of those things, which I would have loved because all those wild... Um, kids up there you know with purple hair and you know needles through their nose and all it would when I worked around the school I thought this is adorable I love this and I love the students I could see it would be a fascinating place to be at the same time I'd been approached by the Americans because we had a study abroad uh, relationship with Carnegie Mellon so we had students from there come out to us for a decade or so so they were looking for a new head and so they contacted me and said are you even interested in coming to america and i thought i, I had no chance whatsoever of going to america i said yes i'd love to <laughs> <laughs> and so that went on for a while and then i got both and so i had to make a choice between one and the other so eventually i decided that america was a much bigger uh, canvas and that i'd probably enjoy it and ca- a great deal so carried much more prestige to Yes, I wasn't sort of—I didn't really know that then. I, I just—I was looking for experiences, you know. I, lo- I just loved that there was a great big world in America of, you know, music and opera and theatre and film and all of those things, uh, which is not the case in Singapore. So I—I I moved to America, where I didn't know a single soul, and I flew over three times in in a month uh, to be interviewed, and the process takes a year. Uh, old, you know, backwards and forwards and headhunters and all that sort of stuff and finally I got the job and I arrived and turn up day one and we're appointing new faculty that was my very first year I walked in and it was interviewing new staff to be the lighting designers uh, teaching at the school I knew nobody and then within a month the head of writing, playwriting uh, dropped dead in the street in New York we were there visiting, doing something and he was walking down some avenue and just literally dropped on the footpath so in the first month not knowing a single soul i had to find a head of directing overnight because we had all these paying students who needed master students who needed teaching and so it was ordeal by fire uh the first the first little while there and it remained like that for a while because you know a lot of people faculty and you know What's this Australian doing over here telling us what to do? And possibly some faculty who had applied for the job, maybe. Of or, course. Yeah, yeah. Of course, just like I had at NIDA, so it was sort of sweet revenge. <laughs> 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 but, I, but you get over things, you know. I, I'm, and I'm now at a point where I thought, I've been away from America now for two years, and I was there for 12 years at the school. And there's a new, there's new management, there's new people, there's all new stuff. And I think that that's great. You know, people say it's varied in a certain way. Well, that's bound to happen. And we've had our time and we had a great time. Now it's the next group time to do it. Because when you hang on to these jobs, I was at NIDA for 22 years. So for 22 years, nobody in Australia had a look in on that job, (laughs) which is a long time to hang on to something. Generational change is inevitable, isn't inevitable. it? Inevitable. And,
0: and important, not only from the staff, but, but the students also change.
1: And I think most things, there's a, rocky, there's a rocky period that follows change. I mean, you come in with all the expectations, thinking, oh, it's this new broom, and suddenly the person does something, and you think, oh, we made a terrible decision. So I think all change comes with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And that uncertainty can lead people to think much more clearly about their role. And much more clearly about the direction of the institution. Because suddenly you're challenging things. Uh, And somebody's knocking on the door saying each day, what was that I saw last night? And where were you? Or who's guiding this? Or how's this student supposed to cope when you're not here? Or you're off doing a lovely play somewhere and the students are left alone in their studio. So the American system is you get into a job, you get tenured. I was a tenured professor, which means for life. For life, you get paid for life. Uh, only, only, you know, the king, the pope, and tenured professors get paid for life. Uh, so long as you hold your tenure, and it's very difficult to get rid of tenure. So if somebody's against you, tenure protects you. Do you have to return for a visit every so I'm te- I'm emeritus. Right. No, but I, but they look after yep. all my all my business. Right. Uh, and if I'm back in America, I get an office and I get people. Um, So, so, you know, there's this precious thing in America called tenure. And, of course, once you have tenure, then it's the best amongst equals. So I can say to somebody, I think we could be doing, you know, more uh, plays by Mexican writers. And, you know, the head of writing might say, well, I don't like that at all. (laughs) In which case, nothing will happen. Because they're tenured, you can't get rid of them, you can't do anything. So the whole process has to be negotiation. Uh, John Clark could say whatever he liked at night and we'd all jump to attention. Um, He he never did that, I might add. Uh, So the process in America was much more uh, democratic in a certain degree, where you had to get people on board the whole time to move something forward. You're a politician, effectively, aren't you? You are. You're a fundraiser, uh, and you travel through. Because I was at the university, you also then travel through the ranks of the university hierarchy. So I, I mean, there's no board, there's no you know terrible governance people, all that stuff that poor old, you know, is stuck with you know hopeless boards and things like that. You don't have any of that, uh, but you do have a provost and, and a and a and a president so that you you know you dance to their tune and i was blessed to have wonderful three presidents in my time and four provosts all of whom were wonderful uh, and they could see that the school was heading in a good direction if you were not heading in the right direction and applications tell you very quickly in america whether you're doing well or not you know it's no use talking about it They just go down and say, how many applicants you've got? How many people are paying for this? (laughs) And you know very quickly uh, where you're at. So our applications doubled. Um, They're paying a fortune. You know, they're paying a huge amount of money, like 70,000 plus US a year. A year. To study. For study, for four years, you know. And there's all sorts of financial aid if, you, if you're in need. But, you know, if you're an average sort of middle-class family, you're paying through the nose for education. And that's an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Then there's graduate study. Then there's PhD, if that's your trajectory. So, you know, we know what the salaries in the theatre are. And it's all very well to say, you know, the top, top 0.1% are, are earning a fortune. There's a lot of people in the middle who are doing well. Because there's a huge educational scene in America. Huge. Two and a half thousand places you can study to be in the theatre in America. In Australia, there's probably about 20. Yeah. But there's two and a half thousand in America, all of whom have design departments, theatre seasons, you know, plays, kids wanting to be in the shows, designers being employed. So there's not only the professional theatre and film and television, there's the educational theatre scene, which sucks up a huge number of graduates. A huge number of graduates. And most professionals that I knew, top professionals on Broadway, also have an adjunct position at a university, which pays their healthcare and health coverage and all of those things, which you have to have in America. So it's a complicated situation, um, but it's a huge scene. The states appreciate their arts
0: more, do you think, than
1: Australia, then perhaps? Is that the difference? Yes, I I think absolutely i mean every single i was in pittsburgh okay which is a you know a post-industrial town like port kembler yeah. but now it's been completely rebuilt and re-energized through medicine uh, autonomous vehicles and education so there's a huge uh, fly in fly out medical uh, facility like the Mayo clinic there's five top universities and it's the home of IT in the Midwest. So all the bright kids who are coming out of Stanford and everywhere end up in, you know, either out on the West Coast or they come to Pittsburgh for all the um, the tech, high tech stuff. So in that town, there was five theater companies nonstop. There's a very fine opera company, a very good ballet company, one of the best symphony orchestras in America, uh, the Pittsburgh Symphony, with uh, is there because it was a very wealthy city in the 19th century because of Andrew Mellon uh, and Ca- Andrew Mellon and Carnegie uh, Andrew Carnegie, they built huge and wonderful public facilities. so the libraries, the music hall, the first Carnegie Hall is in Pittsburgh. Uh, Andrew Carnegie built a library in it, like every city in America uh, out of his trillions. So it's got wonderful facilities. It's got the oldest and largest art um, biennale in America. International, it's called the uh, Pittsburgh International. So it has this wonderful, uh, vibrant, 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 vibrant uh, life. And then within every university, you've got these drama departments doing you know 15 productions a year. We did 22 productions a year. Wow. 22. Full every night. Yeah. Full. And huge productions of, you know, every musical you've ever heard of and plays and... Well, oh, that alone would keep you out every night watching theatre. Well, it did because we had an opera school, we had, uh, you know, a concert series. We have all those things. So that's at every university. Mm-hmm. So you go to Princeton, you go to Harvard, you go to Yale. They just had this ongoing, endless, you know, cycle of performances going on for, for the locals and the university. So you're a student at university you're doing chemical engineering, but you're going to see the Carnegie School of Drama, you know, production of Sweeney Todd, you know, or whatever's on that night. So there is a huge, uh, a huge uh, audience uh, available through the universities and, and the local centres. But the universities also provide this. Um, we ran a school and we ran an art centre, you know combined NIDA does the same but NIDA doesn't do as many productions we did 22 a year NIDA I think is doing about 10 Peter just to finish off can we remember John Crummel John Crummell. I met him when he was a student no when he was appearing at the Old Toad and he was in Love for Love and I was a student at NIDA and I remember coming into the old 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 Toad Theatre which was on Anzac Parade which now underneath where the new NIDA building sits we're watching, it was a matinee, and we used to get free tickets to the Old Toad. So, my gang we were all sitting watching this show. And John comes out and he's playing this wonderful dandy, you know, with wigs and cuffs and attitude and poncing around the stage and being complete delight. And something happened. Alan Lees designed this huge production, and the set ground to a halt, and so it just stopped. And John, never to miss a trick, just sort of walked downstage, plumped himself on the front of the stage and sang Over the Rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first experience of him. And then we met up in Queensland where he was appointed Deputy Director, Assistant Director to Alan Edwards, and I did a dozen productions with him over time. He was a mercurial, exotic, difficult, challenging, provocative, uh, enigmatic, You know, mysterious talent that was driven, utterly driven by the notion of performance. He loved everything about actors. He loved everything about the high wire act of being out there and doing it. And I can remember I'd be on so many productions with him and it would all be going well. Then the day would come and it would always come and I'd be called to the dressing room and he'd be slumped in a corner crying. And he said, I can't do it. I won't go on. I'm not doing it. I can't do it. I'm just not going to do it. And I'd sit down, and i think, after the first time where I was you know, panicking and thinking, God, I've got to ring up the producers. I think, you know, we've got to find somebody to do this. I just knew it's just a matter of time. So I would sit down, and I'd say, John, 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 John. And we'd go through this whole process of, so do you think I can, or oh, maybe I can, or maybe I should. Are, are people waiting? Are there people out there? <laughs> and so we would go through that process. So I adored him. He was a wonderful character. And... When I went to America, and we saw each other all the time for, for years and years, every day I saw him. And, and we'd go to the theatre, we'd go to everything together. And then I went to America, and because he didn't use email, he was completely Luddite about it, all that. Uh, we just lost touch. And then I was back last year, and I was in Sydney, and I was at a party for somebody's birthday, and John arrived, and he just walked in, he just came over, he just hugged me, we just held each other for about five minutes. Not a word said, nothing. Just the heartbeat you could feel between the two of us. And then he just picked up and it was like we'd seen each other the day before. Wow. That was remarkable. Then I saw him a couple of times and then he fell down a flight of stairs, hurt himself, went to hospital and passed away. But he was one of those remarkable Australian talents. I link him back to people like... um, Coral Brown and Barry Humphreys and uh, Ridge Livermore and, you know, a whole host of exotic people. John Bill, Monica Moore, Freddie Parslow, Simon Shilvers, Frank Thring. People who had a unique voice, physicality, and loved the high-wire act of performing and knowing that every night you could just crash and burn. Yeah. And that's what makes the theatre so remarkable. Barry Kosky talks about it in an article in The Australian Today that the thing that you go to the theatre for is to see this high wire act and nothing else can can come near that. No internet, no film, no any anything of knowing somebody's out there and they're going to talk for 15 minutes uh, without a breath uh, or without a mistake. Uh, that's a rare talent and, you know, he was just one of those gifted angels. Dr Peter Cook, thank you
0: for this conversation and, and thank you for all that you've given the uh, the education of the Performing Arts in Australia and abroad. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. Peter Cook's Australian, Indian and American students have gone on to win numerous national and international accolades for their contributions to the arts, including Helpman Awards and Green Room Awards, Tony Awards, Emmy Awards and Academy Awards. His influence on the arts and his legacy is vast. Thank you, Dr. Cook, for sharing your story and insight in this episode of Stages. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.